On March 26, 2019, when this podcast was very, very young, Google's front page art, aka Google Doodle, was a woman sitting among desert dunes writing a book. It was San Mao. Who was she? Well, in this episode, we have San Mao translator, and indeed San Mao expert, and most importantly, San Mao admirer, Mike Fu, here to help answer that question. My discussion with him covered a lot of ground. You're going to hear mention of our word of the day, and of lots of ION words, elation and depression, appreciation and accusation, colonialism and liberation, culture crossing and culture clashing, Aileen Chang, JG Ballard, Rudyard Kipling, Philip K. Dick, books as devices for transmission and time travel, because I really just can't get my head out of the sci-fi zone, even though this isn't a sci-fi book. Uh, but before all of that stuff, let's hear the news. Not just any news, the church of fake news. So our first news item is about me. It's my news, but it is interesting and it could lead to cool stuff on this show. It's another event I'm going to, hosted by the Lead Centre for New Chinese Writing. If you've been listening to the show for even a brief stretch of time, you'll have heard me talk about it before. Uh, well, they're doing an event for book reviewers uh, in late March, and I'm going to go along to that. We're going to be discussing various uh, C2E books in kind of like, I think, like workshop uh, format. Um, it should be very exciting. I'm hoping to find some possible new show guests whilst I'm down there. So expect to hear a wee bit more about that in the future. Walk this, uh, walk, watch this space. Um, I know for a fact one of the books we're going to talk about is The Perfect Crime by IE, which I've covered on this show. Um, a Hero Born, the first in the Condor Heroes, or sorry, Legends of the Condor Heroes uh, series. I've read that, we've not covered that on the show. And the other book, one that I do actually have to read in preparation, is That We May Live, which is actually my second news item. I'm going to tell you about what That We May Live is. So That We May Live is coming out from Two Lines Press, who uh, publish translated works, basically. And rather than me trying to briefly summarise what this book is and then reading other people's descriptions, I'm going to start with the kind of, I don't know, the, the blurb the blurb for the book that um, Two Lines Press have got up on their site. So here we go. A woman impulsively decides to visit her grandmother in a scene reminiscent of Little Red Riding Hood, only to find herself in a town of women obsessed with a mysterious fermented beverage. An aging and well-respected female newscaster at a provincial TV station finds herself caught up in an illicit affair with her boss, who insists that she recite the news while they have sex. An anonymous city prone to vanishing storefronts begins to plant giant mushrooms for its citizens to live in, with disastrous consequences. In this book of, in this first book in the brand new Calico series, we, that being uh, Two Lines Press, bring you work by some of today's most exciting writers from China and Hong Kong, including Dorothy Tse, Zhu Hui, and Enoch Tam. Lightly touching on issues of urbanization, sexuality, and propaganda, the collection builds a world both utterly disorienting and disturbingly familiar, prompting the question, where does reality end and its absurdity begin in a world pushed to its very limits? So they've been um, kind of pushing it or presenting it as a collection of Chinese speculative fiction. Um, that's a bit of a, I don't know if loaded or contentious is the right term, but it's supposed to be a term that covers uh, sci-fi, fantasy, and horror, but one puts them under an umbrella, and two gives it a kind of literary um, 
I don't know if prestige is the right word, but it puts it in a literary sort of mode or space to put it alongside supposed highbrow literature. But the thing I'm noticing about this collection is it's kind of a world apart from the world of Chinese sci-fi kind of um, and translated Chinese sci-fi as well, which kind of is probably gathered around, I suppose, Leo Sishin and Tor, uh, Head of Zeus and Clark's world. This is a different kind of genre fiction, if you can call it that, coming, I would say, from like a more literary angle. Um, if you've ever come across the term uh, magical realism, which is also a kind of fiction that plays with reality but keeps its kind of literary prestige. I wonder if this might be more like a magical realist series, but they're putting it under speculative, speculative fiction for their own marketing reasons. That's my slightly cynical take, but I have a PDF copy of this book. And I have to say it looks absolutely marvellous. They've got like really nice pages for the authors, like many author bios that are bilingual. They have the Chinese and the English side by side on those author bio pages. So as a piece of design, it's gorgeous. Um, they've got a full list of the uh, authors who are appearing. There's a uh, Dorothy Tse, Enoch Tam, Zhu Hui, Chan Chihua, Chen Sa'an, who we covered on the show before. She wrote uh, the play I saw at the Edinburgh Fringe, Ocean Hot Pot. And Yan Ge, who obviously we covered, uh, I, well, I talked I talked about her book, Chili Bean Pace Clan, with Nikki Harmon in a past episode. And the list of translators. So as we said, there's Natasha Bruce and Jeremy Tiang. Jeremy Tiang we've mentioned a few times. There's also Kanan Morse, Audrey, he, I do not know how to say that surname. Audrey Haynes, probably Haynes, probably Haynes, not sure. And Michael Day as well. So been a bit of a long news entry but there you go everything you need to know about that we may live keep your eyes open for that one and expect me to talk about it more on the show okay third news item and the last one i think i've tweeted about this and it's about paper republic who i think you've heard about on just about every episode for the last wee while so paper republic is um basically the best database of translated Chinese fiction, or maybe even the, in fact, no, not maybe, definitely also the best English language uh, database and hub point for English language hub point about Chinese literature. It's a fantastic site run by some really great translators and whatnot. So they're looking for people to help add to, correct, yeah, basically add to and amend stuff in their database because although they are the best database of this stuff, it isn't quite complete. There's like when I go and go on there, I go on there a lot to get authors' names and information, and pictures, histories of publication, and it is an absolute lifeline for me. But it's not complete. So I've I've signed up as a contributor and I've added a few things. It's a pretty easy system once you've um, got your head around it. So if you have the time and you're interested, just um, go head over to their website and you should find the um, necessary information to sign up as a contributor. It's lovely people that run it, um, Eric Abrahamson and Nikki, Tar- Nikki Harmon, and I believe there's a couple other translators. It's top stuff. Just if you, Even if you don't want to help them out, just check out their site, because if you like this podcast, you will find their site to be a treasure trove. So yeah, that is all the news. Let's crack on and let's hear from Mike Fu and what he had to say about San Mao's stories of the Sahara. So I've got on the show with me, Mike Fu. Hello, Mike. Hi, Angus. How are you doing? 
I'm doing good. I had a very nice day and I'm having a very nice evening. So Mike is the translator of the Sanma book that we're looking at today. And he's an incredibly friendly and, in my opinion, from what I've gathered and from reading his translation, a very sharp person. And I can add, if you know what this means, he's got an olive tree artfully placed with uh, Chinese and emojis, my two favorite languages, on his Twitter bio. So um, shameless flatterly, flatterly? Shameless flattery aside, Mike, can you tell us a wee bit about yourself and what you do? Yeah, sure. So um, hello, everyone. My name is Mike. I have been a resident of New York City for the past almost 12 years now. And um, by day, I'm a university administrator working at Parsons School of Design. But I'm also a Chinese-English translator and a writer of primarily fiction. Um, and my uh, recent translation of Stories of the Sahara by Samma was published by Bloomsbury um, in November 2019 in the UK and released worldwide in January 2020. Mm. And for any of you guys who are, well, I suppose most of the listeners can't be big publishing nerds, Bloomsbury, if that's ringing a bell, that's the company that got its big start from publishing Harry Potter and now publishes, not that Harry Potter isn't cool, but lots of cool things, just like Sam Miles' book. I think you're the second, at least the second New Yorker who's been a guest on the show. We had another translator, Matt Turner, who was on as well. Oh, yes, I know Matt. That's oh, great. cool. Yeah, he's he did um, uh, the first ever episode that was kind of an author being covered for a second time. He did the uh, version of Lu Xun's uh, Wild Grass Ye Tao, which he'd called Weeds. So, yeah, we did Lu Xun and Weeds. Um, copy of that um, a couple months ago i saw him yeah do a reading at china institute here in new york oh cool um i was i yeah i have an e-copy they weren't able to give me a physical one but it's a, a pretty book and so if you guys are interested seek out weeds uh by lu shun translated by matt turner anyway uh let's try not to get derailed before we even finish the intro um mike there's a lot of things i'd love to ask you about stories of sahara but let's take one small step before we take the other 999. I haven't remembered to do a word of the day for every single episode since I started, since I introduced the concept of the show, but we've got one for today. And apologies if I mess up the tones. Uh, Liu Lang. Liu Lang. Um, so I've got a trio of questions about, well, yeah, themed around this word, Liu Lang, that might help listeners who are new to San Mao and even listeners who know San Mao but don't know so much about the Sahara. So first of these three Liolang questions, what does Liolang mean? And also, am I messing up the tones horribly? <laughs> um, it's Liolang. Liolang, uh, Liu okay. Uh, it means to, to roam or to drift, um, to wander, you know, any of those sort of very loosey, abstract kind of, um, um, you know, uh, notions of rootlessness, essentially. Mm. Uh, the characters are Liu, as in flow to flow and mm -hmm. um, is like waves essentially you know among other constructions that you can find both of those characters in but yeah essentially right. it means to be a drifter a vagabond um, that sort of thing mm -hmm. um, Leo has come up so many times on this podcast we've had I think we've had Leo Lang before we've had Leo Mang come up a few times and uh, I don't know if I've explicitly talked about it on the show but I've run into Leo Wang um, just like emigre or exile mm -hmm. and uh, spoilers for upcoming episodes if all goes according to plan 
I'll be doing one with a very special guest on Vagabonds by Hao Jingfang. And its Chinese name, I'm stupid and I've forgotten characters three and four, but the first two are also Liu Lang. So I don't know if this is my own little personal tastes making me zoom in on this thing, or if this really is a big character in Chinese literature, the, the Leo part. Is this is it something that jumps out at you a lot, or is this just all kind of... I feel like I haven't quite noticed its recurrence so much, but it is a fairly common character, I'd say. Right. Uh, so, you know, maybe once you start to um, become aware of a particular thing, you start seeing its pattern everywhere. That, yeah. yeah. What's that? What is that bias called? Is that selection bias or something? <laughs> Not sure some, about that. Some, some kind of bias. It'll come to me. Okay, so that was the first question. Uh, second question is maybe, maybe more straightforward. Uh, who was San Mao? Um, San Mao was the pen name of, well, two, th there are two characters, right? Or two, two distinct iterations of San Mao. The right. earlier being um, a cartoon character um, popularized by a Shanghainese cartoonist by the name of Zhang Leping um, in the 1930s and 40s primarily. San Mao was, San Mao literally three hairs was um you know a street urchin um in shanghai um and a political cartoon of the time essentially he was so mal malnourished that he had only three hairs on his head um later on the name sanma was also adopted by um, a taiwanese woman who traveled to western africa in the 1970s and um, she took on this moniker as her pen name and started writing um, some interesting dispatches while living in the Spanish Sahara, sending them back home to be printed in the newspapers in Taiwan. And eventually when she, um, when those collected stories were published as a single volume, Stories of the Sahara, that was her entree into the, the literary scene more formally. And for the rest of her life, she was known as uh, San Mao. <clears throat> and we could probably get more into the philosophical question of who or what is the concept or the persona of Sama later on, but rather than get bogged down in that, uh, a third question here that ties one and two together, what have Liu Lang and Sanma got to do with each other? Well, firstly, I think she, uh, as a person, she was very much um, someone who engaged in the act of Liu Lang, let's say, you know, mm -hmm. drifting around the world, um, so she was born in Chongqing in, in the early 40s, actually, during the Chinese Civil War, and then relocated with her family to Taiwan um, in the late 40s, where she came of age. And in the 60s, she found herself, um, her name is Chen, Chen Maoping, uh, right. um, and eventually just Chen Ping when the middle character Mao was dropped from her uh, given name. But mm -hmm. as a young woman, uh, Chen Ping traveled to Europe, studied abroad in Spain and Germany, or West Germany at the time, and the United States, um, and then eventually went back to Taiwan, then returned to Spain again, went to Africa, wrote the stories that became stories of the Sahara. Um, and throughout her life really was kind of this wandering character. So Liu Lang in that sense, you know, seems most apropos for, for the trajectory of her life. Um, but also it's really um, connected to the popular memory of San Mao through um, the song that she wrote um, right. called The Olive Tree. And, you know, the, the refrain is, um, you know, speaks 
a lot about um, drifting far away, roaming far away, um, or as- asking asking herself, asking the listener, why why do I roam roam so far away? Mm. Um, as prep for the show, I I I think I think this this might get mentioned later on in my notes. If we mention it now, we might not mention it later. But in any case, as prep for the show, I listened to a recording of of the Olive Tree song and it struck me it was quite a, a sad, reflective song. Yeah. And the stories of the Sahara, it's definitely reflective, but sadness... Now, I, there are moments that are not, I don't know, that aren't bubbly and... Uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? Upbeat, I suppose. But there's not really a lot of sadness in the stories of the Sahara. And just before you called me, I was watching a film we might talk about later called uh, English Names Red Dust which was a script. The script of Red Dust was written by San Mao. And there's a lot of sad... Well, I'm only about a third of the way through it, but already I can see there is a sad undercurrent in that. So did you see the same thing I see reading Stories of the Sahara, that the sadness you can see in San Mao's other output isn't really there? Um, Interesting question. I don't know. I mean, I think there's definitely a lot of levity in Stories of the Sahara, but... Mm there's just as much um, darker content or themes that comes through um, pretty regularly. And I wouldn't say the book on the whole is a sad book, but I think knowing what we know in hindsight about both San Mao and her late husband, Jose, I think there is maybe that sort of, maybe it's my own or the reader's own projected, you know, sadness in, in some cases. Um, mm. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I don't think sadness is really the at the forefront, but at the same time, I feel like it's something that is, for me at least, a little bit somewhat unshakable from, from you know, there's a tinge of it in even some of the happier stories. Yeah, for sure. Um, for listeners who don't know, when you mentioned about the things some readers will know in the back of their head about uh, San Mao and her husband, Jose, uh, what are those things, for, just for anyone who doesn't know? Well, San Mao, she... Um, she and her husband, her Spanish husband, Jose, were living in um, the Western Sahara, um, the Spanish Sahara, the last colony of the Spanish Empire mm. in the mid 70s. And that's the time during which she wrote this book um, or the stories that became this book. And then um, they relocated to the Canary Islands after afterward. And um, Jose ended up dying in an accident, in a diving accident in 1979, I believe also in the Canary Islands. Um, and then San Mao eventually took her own life about 12 years later in 1991. Right. A year after Red Dust came out. I have to say, um, the way Jose passed away in an accident, there are certainly a lot of close shaves that I guess both the characters have in this book. They were, They certainly lived an adventurous life when they were out in that part of the world. I'd like to ask a question about that, but I've got a lot of questions for you and we, we should charge on. Um, we've got a few different sections. There's publishing questions, questions about the author, questions about the story, questions about the translation of the story, i.e. your work, and then some questions about the further reading that we've kind of touched on already. So let's start Let's go through the sequence I've got them in. Let's start with the publishing angle, which I'm interested in as a a person who holds a master's in publishing that he's putting to some kind of use. Let's 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 talk about that stuff. So first question here. Um, when I was doing some like initial research slash snooping around for this episode, I was kind of surprised to see such a big disparity between the celebration of San Mao that you can find in English 
and that you well that I had heard a lot from lots of Chinese friends and that, that you can find I think in Chinese if, if you know how to find it and the publication in translation the English language things I guess the, the English language output of San Mao is not easily accessible at least as far as I could find you can read about her but to get her actual words until now thanks to you and Bloomsbury I guess wasn't so easy you've kind of remedied the the drought as it were so is everything I've just babbled on about there my impression is that correct um as far as I know yes there there have been some unofficial translations of her work floating around the internet uh -huh. uh, some things that I'd seen you know um, over the years that I've been doing this project um, but I don't believe there was any official published English translation of her work until now. Um, and it's quite startling given her influence um, in the Chinese speaking world and the fact that this book came out in 1976 originally. Um, so right. it's a gap of nearly 50 years between um, its original publication and the translation into English. Yeah, I don't remember if I wrote uh, an explicit question about this, but what has her influence been? I mean, I know it's big. People have told me it's big, but you might be a great person to lay out exactly why she's such a big deal. Well, I think she was um, in her generation, the 70s and 80s, when she kind of emerged onto the literary and cultural scene. Um, people were fascinated by her um, and many young people, especially young, young women, um, were drawn to her her voice, her literary voice, as well as her kind of um, transnational sensibilities, let's say, um, mm. her globetrotting ways, her, you know, effortless um, polyglot status, many things like that, I think, um, at a time when young people from Taiwan and Hong Kong, let alone mainland China, really did not have the means to travel so far and wide. She was one of the first figures, and, you know, especially uh, a female, um, a young woman, uh, who was able to to not only roam to Europe and Africa and Latin America and what have you, but also to really participate and um, to be to to be part of those cultures to to an extent. Um, she spoke fluent English and Spanish, and I think also a bit of German. Um, she was just like a very um, charismatic figure um, in the public eye and in the way that she presents herself in her stories. Mm. It, it just occurred to me, like you said, um, people in Hong Kong, Taiwan, mainland China weren't able to travel the world, maybe partly because of just, well, I guess in China and Taiwan, I'm not sure, I, I'm not as educated about Hong Kong, but there were authoritarian regimes in place, but also just, I guess, worldwide, techno technologically, it wasn't as easy to be as, uh, wasn't as easy to be a, a globetrotter as it is now. I, I've heard people say that in a way, she's a kind of a proto embodiment of like your modern blogger travel blogger or maybe even travel instagrammer or something some ways yes i've, I've heard that comparison as well mm, do you think it's a good one or do you think it's a bit superficial um i think it's not necessarily um well i think it's accurate and in, in that it's a double-edged sword right and i think that's why her detractors also um you know had their comments about about the type of persona that she projected. Um, so she was very influential because many people were like, wow, who's this amazing, like multilingual, um, you know, woman who's out there living abroad, writing about her life and 
sort of very uh, confessional in, in some ways and oversharing, um, relatable, you know, those are kind of the words that get tossed about. Um, and then I think, you know, people who view her work negatively um, or don't have, let's say, um, they don't uh, have high praise for her literary merits, think that a lot of the content that she produced, or let's not say content, that's too <laughs> contemporary. Lots of the, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> the stories that she wrote, um, the books that she wrote, you know, were, yeah, self-absorbed and, and superficial in that, in, in that same vein. Yeah, I mean, a little bit of that in, in good measure, written well. It doesn't necessarily have to be a, a criticism if it's personal. But I can see where those critics might have been coming from. I don't agree with them, but um, I kind of get it. Um, I'm really, my tendency to waffle and go on a tangent is really showing here. But another thing that occurred to me, um, well, I, was tr I was trying to think like what, from my own perspective here, living in the UK, what British writers were famous for writing things living further afield and the answer is of course maybe people like uh, Rudyard Kipling who were far far afield and on the ground but because of the empire whereas in this book you know San Mao she's not part of a Taiwanese imperial project but she's living in a place where like you said some kind of empire or colonialism or whatever is still going on I don't really have a question here yeah, I think that's just a little interesting note to drop when we start to talk about that stuff. Uh, let's go back to publishing um, okay. really quickly. So how do Crown Publishing and Bloomsbury fit into the kind of, I, I don't know what you call it, fit into the the scene of San Mao being brought into English in uh, translation? Crown was her um, original publisher in Taiwan that released Stories of the Sahara in the 70s. And I believe she had a relationship with one of the editors there um, prior to its publication, or she, she knew one of them, um, was close mm. to somebody. Um, I, I, I think that they were her exclusive publisher for the remainder of her life, um, in, in Taiwan at least. And um, Bloomsbury acquired the rights to this book in 2015. And then sometime in early 2016 was when I um, was hired for the project. Mm. Well, it's interesting that the rights were acquired that many years back and now it's come to fruition, but it goes to show how little I know about rights in publishing, despite having a master's. But we'll, we'll skip over my ignorance uh, and go to the next question. Um, so my research, I can admit, has been, it's been a little bit lazy. Like I didn't know Crown Publishing was Taiwanese. I saw that very kind of European medieval looking name Crown and I assume this was some other Western publisher but anyway that's an indication of how maybe laid back I've been. Another indication is that to just find out some things from more knowledgeable people I made a Sanmao group chat on Instagram because I, I saw that Instagram has enabled such things <laughs> and I learned some really interesting things from my uh, my listeners. Oh, Thank yeah. you guys. Uh, uh, Dylan Levi King and Scarlett Zhang especially. Thanks guys. Um, they told me that there used to be a lot of, not just like an economy of books by San Mao, but I suppose secondary texts. There was an economy of books about San Mao, San Mao that um, Chinese and uh, Taiwanese publishers could make a little bit of money off. Um, have you come across, or had you come across those at all? Yeah, so, you know, she definitely um, stirred up a lot of... Um vigorous opinion, I think, of various kinds. Mm. Uh, so she 
was prolific in her own writing and publish publications. Like um, I think she had over 20 titles to her name. Um, and then I want to say mostly after her passing, but maybe there were some before, there were a number of books written by others about, about Sanmo, um, her, her own kind of like biographical accounts, but there were also other uh, more scandalous um, uh, publications that were, you know, like by her contemporaries who, like a contemporary male author or writer oh. to debunk um, Sanmo's claims. They would go try to retrace her footsteps in, in um, Western Africa and claim that a lot of the things that she wrote about in her stories that were purportedly autobiographical or at least semi-autobiographical, people were claiming that she had, you know, invented outright or you know fabricated large swaths of what she passed off in public as um, her her own experiences. Hmm. Sounds a bit mean spirited of of those authors. Oh yeah, to say the least. And you know, there's still many, many people who um, are diehard fans of San Mao in the present day. And um, there are a couple of names uh, among those writers that are completely uh, persona non grata. You know, let's say. <laughs> well, serves them right. Um, speaking of this group chat that I mentioned, one listener told me a tale, and this relates to maybe posthumous output. Let's say posthumous, not published, not posthumous publications but output after after leaving this world let's say uh, one listener in the group chat told me about playing a game of uh so, sorry if i mess up these tones again bixian bixian um pen something like pen fairy is the literal translation it's a little bit like chinese uh, a chinese ouija board have you heard of bixian before uh bixian um i haven't i don't know if i'm familiar with that no but I, i've heard some story related to this i don't know if it's the same one where okay. she said about somehow trying to contact her dead husband he uh that i hadn't heard about that this this listener's story was that as a younger girl or woman her and her friend played bixian to try and commune with jose her her dead husband so I was going to ask you if you've heard of that level of fandom, but what you've revealed is there's a story of San Mao doing it herself. So I guess another evidence of the influence she's had on her fans. Um, I don't really have any more questions about that. I just, it's too interesting not to mention. Um, another publishing question. It's about the paratexts. So the, uh, the elements in the book that aren't San Mao's writing, that aren't the main body. There's a lot in this edition. Uh, I think I made a list here. There's a foreword by another writer. There's a timeline of Sanmao's life. There's a translator's note by yourself. There's end matter footnotes. There's translator's acknowledgements, obviously by yourself. There's a note on the author, Sanmao. There's a note on the translator, that's you. And then there's even a whole page uh, dedicated on the font, dedicated to the font that was used. Um, that's a pretty, pretty hefty um, <laughs> contribution for kind of the metatextual elements a whole a whole book on the font um but for me it kind of worked because it gave um not just kind of adding value to use a soulless capitalist um term business term but it added like a sense of literariness or importance or bookishness or whatever you want to call it to the book um do you think that was the intention or was it maybe just more to package and introduce san mao to western readers um both but maybe mm. the latter <laughs> right um 
So the I, I was really happy that Charlene Teo was able to write the um, the forward and really um, you know give that overview of what's of the content of the book and then um, the biographical details that you mentioned that was actually or the milestones yeah in the life of Samal that was actually a direct translation of of, of um, pages that appeared in the last edition of Stories of the Sahara that was oh, right. 2011 so inherited content or whatever the technical term is yeah um mm. note on the type you know i i don't know i guess bloomsbury <laughs> thought that was um something that we that was important to mention but I'm, I'm happy it's in there and um i'm glad to hear that the other notes were somewhat interesting or useful i, I feel like it perhaps in retrospect it feels a bit indulgent to have written um both like a an explanatory or a couple of pages and also an acknowledgement section but i'm happy that i had the opportunity to really you know um overshare as is my tendency to um when, when it comes to things like this personally like i'm in in films and books I'm, i quite like meta things and i remember long before i had uh, long before i knew i was going to venture and and live in in, in china or anything like that or do this podcast or be interested in translation uh i read it's the book that the oh what's it the roman polanski film the ninth gate that's based on a book called the club dumas and that was the first book i ever read where it mentioned that it was written in translation and i remember liking the prose in the book and i remember having this like self-consciousness whilst reading it like oh this translator is a good writer it's not just the writer who's a good writer and every time i read a a book for this podcast or a book translated from Chinese for my own enjoyment. I like it. I, I don't I don't mind being made a little more self-conscious as I read. In, in my opinion, it's kind of a, a good thing. So I don't, if it is an indulgence, personally, I think it's a good one. Well, thank you for that. <laughs> That's all right. Yeah, I, I enjoyed reading your notes. Uh, I read them all before reading the book um, and it did prime me nicely, help me understand why I was reading it uh, as I was reading it rather than after the fact. So um, that's all my publishing angle questions. We can go on to talking about the big personality herself, um, San Mao. So you mentioned her birth name was Chen Maoping. Mm -hmm. We've talked about her pen name, I suppose, San Mao. Um, how about Echo Chan? Who's Echo Chan? Mm, yes. Um, so there's that interesting triangulation of, of her identities. Um, Echo, Echo was the name by which she was known to her non-Chinese friends. I think it was a name that she adopted while, um, I, I think it actually, uh, from what I read or understood, it was a name that she had come to thanks to one of her teachers in Taiwan. But um, when she was living and studying abroad, that was, you know, when she really assumed the, the, the mantle of Echo, I guess. So to... Mm -hmm. For non-Chinese friends, um, she was Echo. Right. Um, I was think I was talking in the group chat, uh, one that I mentioned earlier, about the kind of the modern, what's the proliferation or just commonness? Commonness is not a good adjective, but the frequency that you'd come across um, Chinese women with an English name, Echo. Yeah. And it occurred to me, actually, like the very first uh, like TEFL teaching English in China job I had was for a company called Echo English. And now I'm wondering, was the boss of that company a Sanma fan? Possibly, yeah, possibly not. Very possible because um, most, if not all of the Chinese women or Taiwanese women who I've met 
who um, call themselves Echo, took that name based on their um, appreciation or passion for, for San Mao herself. Yeah, actually, one of the echoes I knew was like doing her own blog on uh, WeChat, what they call the WeChat official account. So I didn't know it at the time, but that that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, there, there's a question I have three skips ahead here down my list of questions, which I realize I should have put directly below this one about uh, the triangulated identity of uh, Chen Maoping, San Mao, Echo Chan. This is this is a question preceded by a tangent, so I I apologize to all the listeners and yourself but this question will make sense after i've preluded it with the tangent so one of my favorite ever tv shows um mr robot just ended recently and in mr robot there's a mega corporation called ecorp and every time the main character who we are very much in the head of well he he thinks of them as evil corp not ecorp but evil corp so every single time any character or any logo of eCorp appears, it's not spoken or visualized as eCorp. It, we hear and we see evil corp. And that that was kind of in my mind as I was reading stories of the Sahara, because I was wondering when a character says, oh, Sanmao, come here. In reality, were they really calling her Sanmao like they are on the page? Or were they calling her Echo? And for the sake of... I don't know, coherence or presenting a particular picture, was San Mao writing San Mao and not Echo? Or was she writing San Mao and not Chen Mao Ping or Mao Ping? So two questions here. One is, do you actually know, which is probably a boring question. And the second, more interesting question, how big do you think the gap is between the writer's persona on the page of San Mao and the real person off the page, whoever that person is? Mm. Great questions. Uh, Thank you. <laughs> I cannot fact check this, but I'm pretty positive that nobody called her San Mao in, in, mm. in real life. At least in this time writing these stories in Africa. Um, she was echo to everyone, especially her husband. Her husband, right. her husband's family. I think everybody who met her while she was in the West uh, or when studying in Europe, in the US or whatever, she was echo. Mm. Um, the fact that she chooses to in in the book throughout the book when characters when her when she appears in dialogue, she it's always San Mao. Echo appears nowhere in the book. Um, I think it's a very deliberate choice, actually. Right. And, um, I think a similar question came up at my my um, book launch um, last week in Brooklyn, but um, I feel like it's almost as though she's winking at the reader um, in mm. these instances. Um, you know, for somebody who doesn't know much about her, they might just see San Mao appear in dialogue and shrug it off um, or just assume, hey, it's, you know, her pen name, it's who she was, it's what people called her. But um, I don't know, maybe others, she, she assumes there are other people who understand more of um, the, the lived reality of her life and, um, yeah, and... and knew enough of that she was not called Sanmao really by by um, anybody in like day-to-day -day interactions. That is very interesting. Thanks for that answer. Um, but, let's, uh, oh, sorry, what were you going to say? One, one, one note I want to add to that is mm. of course, later once she had established herself as a as a you know literary figure and cultural icon, um, 
I'm sure you know people refer to her as Sama in the press, and that was the name by which she was known for the rest of her life in in the public sphere. So, right. Whether or not um, people in her personal life addressed her outright as Sama, I feel like that's um, questionable, um, at least. Mm-hmm. But at least at this time, before she kind of really blew up, definitely it's kind of a literary construction. Interesting. Because I wouldn't necessarily have guessed that. It wouldn't have been one of my possible guesses, but maybe not my number one one. Um, yeah. So next question. It's another, well, they're all questions about the author, but very much like about her as a person. Because that's, I feel like that's the the first place your kind of proverbial eye is drawn when you're reading. Uh, San Mao's attitude towards life, I think, really permeates her writing, at least in this book. Because obviously I've not read anything else by her. I think that's a, kind of a safe safe um, statement or assumption. But I'm wondering if you could succinctly or prosaically uh, describe what was her attitude towards life, at least when she was in the Sahara. Um, I think she espouses this very 70s sort of, um, <laughs> of or like a ideal of loving, you know, your fellow humankind and seeing the humanity and all the people around you, no matter how distant you may feel from them culturally or linguistically. Um, yeah, very bohemian in that way. Um, mm-hmm. I've been asked if she could be considered a hippie, and um, I, I don't think she quite fits the bill to that extreme, but I think mm-hmm. you know a lot of her writing of this time seems to really... Uh, she seems to really internalize maybe some of the sort of global trends of the 60s and 70s. And so she's very, you know, um, she has a lot of pathos and she's very um, warm hearted, expresses warmth and affection to those in her life. Um, really witty and just funny, um, sharp eye, kind of you know, charming woman all around, really. Yeah. If I had a time machine, I'd uh, live through the 60s and 70s and then skip the 80s, definitely. Um, so you've kind of co- preempted or covered my question about was she a hippie, but there was a little subset to that question as to, and I don't necessarily think you would be an expert on this. I'm just curious if you know how much the term hippie, as I would use it, um, applies to 70s or 80s or 60s, 60s, 70s, 80s, Taiwan or China. I think if I have an idea of how little it applies to mainland China. Uh, I have no idea about Taiwan. I Yeah. Mainland China, not a thing. Cultural revolution. You know? A different kind of hippies. Kind of the anti-hippie in some ways. Um, yes. Taiwan, good question. Um, I, I have no idea. I don't have the context for that. But mm. uh, I imagine probably um, not very prevalent in terms of cultural influence, save for among those who had opportunities to spend long periods of time either with foreigners or abroad. Um, yeah. Right. Samal herself, I, I don't think she was a hippie. I mean, I think there's one story, I, the, hippie, the word hippie appears once in the whole book too. And it's in a story right. where she's referencing some kind of tragedy that happened um, in the desert. Um, something about hippies dying in like a, in a, <laughs> oh, yeah. a night in the wasteland. Um, and there's another moment too, where I, she references something else that's very much like a cultural touchstone of the time about she describes herself i mean she's very independent and strong-headed and um um she 
I would say, you know, many people would say she's a feminist and, and uh, spouses those values, but in one of her first stories, um, which I've translated as a desert diner, um, in the second or third paragraph, she says, I'm not a, you know, supporter of the women's liberation movement. She says that very directly. Mm. And, um, Did she say not a supporter or not part? Um, in the Chinese, she says, I'm, I'm not a supporter. Yeah. Right. Mm. Uh, so that's pretty direct. I think, um, I think I, I tried different ways of softening that because it felt a little bit um, counter to what I, what I understood of her or thought, you know, imagined her mm. to be. But I think what she meant to say there is that she's really not, um, she's not, let's say, an ardent activist. Um, mm. It's like participating in um, what was happening at the time, demonstrating for women's liberation. Um, yes. Yeah. Even though she does also in the same, you know, um, story, uh, voice her, her very strong opinions about what she wants from marriage, what she, how she views her marriage, what you know, she tells Jose about their possible marriage, all those things, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, this is a completely going on another kind of strange cultural reference. There's a British documentary maker called Adam Curtis, who made, well, he's made lots of amazing kind of strange stylized documentaries, but the first one of his I ever saw was called Century of the Self. Uh, which kind of, well, I think it, it starts from maybe like the 50s and psychoanalysis, um, but in the middle section deals with how that kind of, a, how this kind of idea of a, a self pinballed from right wing, left wing, or whatever you want to call it, egalitarian and reactionary um, cultural movements. And at the time of maybe like the, the 70s, it was in the left side of the ballpark. And the the kind of, although there's like this hippie, progressive feeling in the air there's also the strong individualistic thing and that's kind of what pops into your head when you were saying the maybe contradictory things about Sanma there she's behaves in a very kind of forward thinking progressive way but her own self is also at the forefront I don't really have a question there just I like throwing in these references yeah I've now completely derailed myself <laughs> probably just flick to page two because I don't have I don't think I have any more questions about hippies uh, these questions are about the story so there's a huge amount in the story to talk about and quite a lot of the things Sanma was writing about align with my own kind of things I'm interested in things that I weren't expecting um, so I, I could start with things that don't necessarily t press my buttons and then get to the strange things but I'm going to eat the kind of eat the dessert first go straight to the weird strange things going on in the edges of the book yeah so like really early on San Mao says I say really early on in one of the early chapters that's making it a bit clearer she um she says strange things happen in the Sahara and she's proven at least by her own story correct because there's uh throughout the course of the book there's a UFO there's a pagan curse which seems disturbingly frighteningly real there's malevolent spirits and there are other smaller things that are kind of defy you could probably describe them in an essay i don't have a single noun or adjective that describes the kind of weirdness going on in the background of this book which is mostly kind of chatty and realistic and everyday and that's what makes it so likable i feel like it's kind of impressive that she achieved that fusion in her writing whether she was going for it or not but what I've got I think I asked you this earlier about the character Leo in 
Liu Lang, Liu Meng, am I just projecting the things I'm interested in? Or is this weirdness, in your opinion, really there in Samuel's writing? The weirdness is definitely there. I think that's part of what makes her so, um, I know, it was so interesting for me to read, at least the first time, whether or not the weirdness correlates to something she actually experienced. I think that's debatable. Um, mm. But I really, I, yeah, I do think that she made conscious decisions to um, to share some of these supernatural or like odd occurrences that may or may not have been happening around her in, in this book in particular. Mm. Yeah, um, I know I already plugged the show uh, Mr. Robot, uh, but I'd like to plug up a, a, a podcast I actually recommended um, before on the show. If If anyone listening really likes the kind of strange and things which if they were lowbrow or presented in a lowbrow way would be called paranormal but these days you can present as highbrow if you call it weird with a capital w there's a podcast called weird studies if you like weird studies if you like this if you like the how the title sounds check out that podcast and if you're already into things like that don't be put off by the realistic veneer i suppose of stories of the sahara because there's some genuinely strange things which i could get into but it would it would take too long i'll just ask you this mike um which unnatural or paranormal or whatever you want to call it episode in the book kind of made your put the shiver up your spine the most oh um great question i would say Hmm. I'm, I'm glad you didn't ask me because I'd be humming and ahhing all day. Yeah, I think the cursed necklace was probably the most disturbing one. Um, mm. But it's also the most elaborate. We spend the most, it's a full chapter. Um, you know, it's uh, a lot of events unfold. And, right. Um, yeah, I think she goes into ex extreme detail about the afflictions that she supposedly encountered. Um, through that cursed necklace. Um, the UFO f feels like a bit of a footnote in an otherwise um, uh, hodgepodge kind of chapter. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I think the one about the Ginny is it's interesting, but I, I guess, I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I like the, the, um, the cursed necklace. The chapter is called A Seed of Death. Yes. Um, a clue in the name that something scary is going to happen. I think that one. While I don't know if it was my favorite, that's definitely like the weirdest with the capital W because I guess the unknown or the, the mysterious or malevolent thing is you really don't know what it is because it's not something you can put a face to like an alien or a genie or genie or a ghost. It really is like some strange force. You, you find out later, spoilers, it might be a curse, but I don't know what, what is a curse. It's not something you can grasp as easily and yeah that i think the the, the chapter with the, the genie scared me a wee bit but that, that one with the necklace where it gets the things it does which i won't go into i mean maybe may, who knows maybe she was exaggerating or fabricating but it comes across so icky and violent and frightening in the story it yeah, really jolted me she, she yeah she describes in lurid detail all all of the things that befall her um and I think, um, yeah, it's a very, it's a very interesting and well-written chapter. Mm, definitely. Um, time for a slightly plainer question. Another, what's your favorite form of question? Um, other than Sanmo, because she's a very big character. Other than her, did you have a favorite character? 
Oh, hmm. <laughs> I mean, is it cliche if I say Jose? Um, no. <laughs> Be honest. Yeah, I think um, Jose is probably, yeah, the, the, there's some quite a few, a handful of major or like supporting characters. I think Jose is the one who feels the most solid um, after spending time with this book over the past years. And I, I think I, I like the, the picture of their domestic life that she paints through, through her writing and the different scenarios that both of them are implicated in. I think, um, you know, I think it gives the reader hopefully a, a sense of who she felt Jose was through these stories and through their interactions. And I don't know, I think for me, it always, yeah, it, it, it felt like a very rounded relationship or by her telling, by Samal's telling, I felt, I felt like I, I could understand their dynamic very well. Um, mm -hmm. my, my first reading the book, let alone, you know, spending many more years with it and translating it. Yeah, it seems like she really knew him and he knew her, or even if they didn't, because he's not, he, he, he's not the most, um, ver, 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 verbose is maybe the wrong word. He's not the most extroverted character. He's, uh, mm -hmm. He comes across as a man of few words, but when he does speak or when he does take an action, it says a lot. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, he's possibly my, at least my favorite, like fully rounded character, but I really liked a lot of the more kind of sketched uh, characters that we get kind of snatched glimpses of and a lot of them are colored by where they're from or their ethnicity or their identity in the western sahara which we'll get into more in a minute but um just want to ask you what did you think of her briefer sketches like one-off or two-off spanish and native sahrawi characters and also um i should probably because it's the word hasn't come up before what does it mean to be sahrawi who is a sahrawi and am i pronouncing the word right I have the same question for myself, but um, the Sahrawi are the indigenous people of the Western Sahara. They are um, uh, Muslims by religion. Um, they speak Hassania Arabic. And at the time of Samal's writing, they were living under um, a Spanish colonial administration. And thus, you know, many were, I don't know if they were forced to, but some, some Sahrawi of, of that region could speak Spanish, and that was the primary means of communicating with the um, the colonizers. Um, yeah. Yep. And what did you think about the some of the more colonial Spanish and well, yeah, some of the more maybe Spanish Spanish characters who are part of the colonial apparatus, and also the native little characters completely detached from that apparatus. Did you have any favorites or moments that stuck out at you? Um, I like the character of Saloon, who's the um, grocery store clerk. Um, oh, yeah. He's in a particularly memorable story. Um, he, I don't know for certain if he's a Sarawi. I don't think that's mentioned, actually, now that mm. I think about it. But no, but yeah, just, uh, I have no idea. Yeah, he, um, you know, he's uh, somebody from, let's say, Western Africa. Um, yeah, I think just the way that that story unfolds i think it's um it, yeah it, it felt it was one of the pieces that when i was reading the book for the first time i, I just thought like wow like what regardless of the veracity of all of the events 
um, in this book. I think her somehow sense of um, narrative and and her sort of you know insights into this character and the story that that, that unfolds from him. I thought those were very compelling um, for me. Um, mm -hmm. As for the other Spanish colonial administrators, there are very few that stick out. I think most of them are very sketches. They remain, they remain sketches of characters more so than anything else. Mm. Um, but I like that they're there. Um, people like the um, secretary at the courthouse or, um, you know, the sort of like vapid wives of the Spanish Democrats. <laughs> you know, I think those, she, again, like how much of that is, is, is um, part and parcel of reality and how much she kind of invented or inserted for, for her own narrative. Who knows, but I, I like that she has these characters um, to offset some of her uh, her and Jose's own predicaments or circumstances or worldviews and whatnot. Mm -hmm. I have to say, um, the scene where there's some of those, as you said, vapid Spanish wives there uh, in a, a local, I don't know what you'd say, a local strongman's mansion and they're being given all the luxury foods and they're turning up their noses, they're saying horrible things about local cuisine whilst being waited on hand and feet. And I was like, oh yes, I've been in this exact situation at a teacher banquets put on by the school I was working at, where <laughs> I suppose that wasn't a colonial relationship, but I felt like I'd met those people in some form or other. And Saloon, the store clerk, I don't know if I've strictly met someone like that, but he felt like someone I could meet, maybe because, like you said, of Sam Mao's... Um, psychological understanding and her ability to put it put it into words on the page um so speaking about spanish and sarawi uh characters and, and the setting and the um, colonial situation that kind of leads me on to this next wee tangent this wee prelude to a little trio of questions um i found in my uh both as like reading for pleasure research for this podcast and um research I did for my dissertation when I was doing my publishing master's, which was on uh, it was on Chinese sci-fi, but also to some extent other translated Chinese books. Um, what I kind of found was that often C2E, Chinese to English books, are marketed often like on the quotes on the cover as an insight into China uh, or something to that effect. And often as a reader and as a podcaster, I do actually read the books in that way and I talk about them in that way. And I don't feel like I'm necessarily guilty just for following a commercial or possibly reductive trend like that approach has some value even if it is limiting if it's the only approach you have but yeah like if a book's in old shanghai i want to treat that book i often want to treat that book as a teleporter or a time machine to take me there back in time and to that place um it's not an invalid way of reading books from other times or other places or other languages but here this is a really different case for me because this is a book that's translated from Chinese, but you could kind of call it a strange case because it's from, oh, yes, yeah, we have a writer who's from Taiwan, which is perhaps a disputed, <laughs> I don't know why I'm saying perhaps, but I say with some degree of sensitivity, a disputed Asian territory, this person from Taiwan who's living in a disputed African territory, West Sahara, which I remember I learned about uh, as like a teenager, I read some factoid in some books saying it was the uh, the only country in the world without a, gov a government, which, I don't know, that seems like a tenuous claim. But like the point still stands. It was a disputed, weird territory when Sanma was living there. 
it's still and, and it still is right so nothing's changed or maybe some things have changed when i was a teenager but the essence of it being a weird borderland non-space da, 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 still applies so i've got a trio of questions for you um i'll let's start with number one that would make sense what is in your words the western sahara um the western sahara is the former um colony of spain the spanish sahara um I my my knowledge of the Spanish Empire and its colonial history is unfortunately a bit spotty. But Sama was living there during the last years of Spain's colonial rule over this land, and um, presently it's administered by uh, Morocco. Um, right. There is an active independence um, and self determination uh, movement among the Sahrawi, who are the as we've mentioned before the indigenous people of the land. Um, who um, it's it's I believe it's in the south southwest of um, Morocco currently. Right. So it's if I was to look on a map, would I like a, a regularly updated digital map, uh, which I should have done before this uh, recording? Do you know if I would see it contained within Morocco, or would it still be listed as a separate non-place? Do you know? It's within Morocco um, by official maps. Um, <clears throat> right. But um, just Googled it now. It says El Ayun is the largest city of the disputed territory of Western Sahara and de facto mm. administered by Morocco. And El Ayun, sorry, can you, how do I say that? Uh, I say it El Ayun, but it, there's El also Ayun. a sort of um, uh, French version, which is La Ayun. Um, okay, so El Ayun or La Ayun, that's where San Ma was living. So. Like when I before I picked up the book, I thought, oh wait, she was actually in the Sahara. She was in the desert. But strictly speaking, well, not strictly speaking. Once you open the book, you find she was in this town, which, like you said, still exists and is still an administrative center. Right. Um, second question: If you read between the lines in this book, do you think the book says anything about San Mao's passport identity? Because from what I noticed, she refers to herself as Chinese. Um, I don't remember. Maybe I could be wrong here. But I don't remember seeing the word Taiwanese. I think I remember seeing the word Taiwan because that's where her parents are. But um, the word Chinese is, that's what's in my memory. Um, yeah. So is there something going on between the lines or am I just looking for something that uh, isn't necessarily there? I think to me, it seems clear that she is a holder of, uh, well, she's a dual citizen after her marriage to Jose. So she was a citizen right. of Spain in addition to the Republic of China or Taiwan. So mm. she, you're right that she never refers to herself as a Taiwanese person. She describes, she mentions Taiwan a few times throughout the book in mm -hmm. reference to family members. Um, but throughout most of it, when it comes to um, cultural identity, she has this tendency to um, really convey pride in um, this sort of what I call like a mythic Chinese identity. Um, mm -hmm. She's still as a Chinese woman. Um, and that's, you know, I think there's a certain ambiguity sometimes in the way that we talk about or translate what the word Chinese might be. Is it, you know, Zhongguoren or is it Huaren? Um, right. Is it, you know, anything else? There's so many different variations, <laughs> you know? But in the book, she definitely, I think more than once, um, 
she refers to herself as a, a Zhongguoren, um, a Chinese person, a person from China. Um, right. But I think she, you know, um, to put that in context, it is she she was born in China. What is what was then and what is still now China um, mm-hmm. under governments. But um, and, yeah, no, it's a, it's a really interesting question. The whole matter of nationality and you know her self identification amid all that. Yeah, I totally forgot to mention the the Spanish um, passport or whatever identity. It's, I'm glad you mentioned that. Um, a third question here also bringing up maps. So I was doing, again, some more lazy internet research. I went on Google Maps and I zoomed in on El Ayun, uh, the town where she was living when, well, the setting of this book, essentially. And I don't, I think I, I think I typed in the word San Mao um, and, or I was looking for absolutely anything San Mao-ish or Chinese, I suppose, in case anyone had relocated there. And I found that there is a San Mao hotel, which as far as I can tell, it looks like a pretty normal hotel for the town with some middling reviews. Would you ever want to go to El Ayun slash go there and stay in the San Mao Hotel? Oh, I'd love to. I, um, yeah, a bit chagrined to, to say that I haven't been out there yet. Um, I did get to the Canary Islands, which is about an hour's flight away from um, El Ayun, but I have not been to Africa at all, Morocco, um, mm. you know, Sahara. Yeah, I've I've been to well, humble brag. I've been to quite a lot of, of countries, but a, a lot of mainland European countries, given that they're not so far away from Scotland where I live. Uh, but I've never been to Spain unless you in, in, unless you count Tenerife. I have been to Tenerife, which is, um, mm-hmm. I think that's kind of nearish the Canary Islands, right, off the coast it's, of Africa. It's one of them, one of the Canary Islands. Um, ah, right. It's a it's a city in one of the Canary Islands. Oh. I think. There you go. I'm so ignorant. I didn't even realize I had been to the Canary Islands. But yeah, um, yeah, that that question doesn't go yes, anywhere. It, but oh, it's the largest of the Canary Islands. Ah. I'm also part of the the geography there. There you go. The more you know. Um, <laughs> that is all my story questions. So now some technical translationy questions. Um, since you are the translator of this book, uh, in the paratexts I mentioned in your translator's note, you talk a little bit about the challenges of translating San Mao and her writing. And very helpfully, you've broken those challenges into categories and they've been typeset with, well, I don't know if you how you rendered the subheadings in your manuscript, but they're in very nice subheadings in the book. And that's helped me ordinary, order my questions very nicely. So um, first you mentioned how you found uh, the original edition, how you found San Mao's stories of Sahara and how it touched you uh, both as a reader and as a Chinese American. Now, I'm a reader, I have lived far from home, and as a Scot, I maybe have a wee bit of a dual national identity or ambiguity, some level of ambiguity there. But to be very frank, I'm, of course, I'm not Chinese, I'm not American either, and maybe most fundamentally, I'm not you. So can you tell me and the listeners how this book touched you? Yeah, certainly. Um, <clears throat> so a friend gave me the book for my 26th birthday um, a while back, <laughs> and um it was, uh, you know, a casual gift, and and I, I found myself just reading it on the subway every day, and um, I was immediately taken by it in a way that was, to be honest, a bit of a shock. So I was born in China, and I mm. moved abroad when I was four, um, first to Denmark and then the United States. So I've been living in the U.S. 
um, since I was um, yeah five years old essentially and went to Chinese language schools growing up on the weekend but at a certain after a certain age really had no interest in or desire to um, you know practice my Chinese or grow my Chinese past a certain um, ability right. so all that said I mean I, I did eventually go back to school to to study Chinese film and literature to a degree um, I think Chinese, language reading is still incredibly draining for me because I have not spent more than at most a couple of months living in China as an adult. Right. Um, even as a translator, you know, I live in New York City, I have Chinese friends, but do I even speak Chinese every day of my life? No, no way. Um, You're not getting the kind of on the street speak. Yeah, so um, when I first read this book, which it was 2011, um, the way that my, 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 how to say it? I mean, I think I was just like really shocked by how um, emotionally connected I felt to the book when I first read it as an adult. Mm. And um, I think uh, there was something, and maybe it sort of aligned with a particular frame of mind or, um, you know, uh, my own emotional state of that time, of that age. Mm. But I'm trying to think of a better word than shocked, maybe taken unaware. Yeah, I think I was just like, wow, like there's something about her sensibilities that just felt like it reached over, you know, the decades and, and mm. thousands of miles and languages to to really you know shake me in a certain way. And um, I was really taken by it. And I, I knew immediately that it was a project that I, I wanted to translate once I realized that it had never been translated before. That was also that was the second shock, I guess. Right. Like when you said she she wasn't a hippie, I think you, there's there's truth there. She's not just a hippie i mean even if i called her like a romantic like in the literary sense that maybe doesn't quite get to the fundamental thing of the poetic spirit or it, whatever spirit she had mm -hmm. can cross lots of different boundaries for sure and i mean your your story is in a way it's really personal but i'm sure and the way it touched me probably didn't have quite a a, a hit that had any deep attachment to my identity but it still hit me in a way other writers couldn't because other writers aren't her and her individuality just comes right out the page even even through um not to diminish your translation but even through translation it's still felt like a little bit of a direct line no i no i get it thank you for that i mean i think um that's how it felt to me too i think maybe you thank you for um um yeah saying that because i i think that's what i i, I was getting at like the immediacy of her voice was something that was just um very surprising caught me off guard i would say mm. you know yeah. right it's like in my mid-20s in new york city in, in in you know 2011 and and reading about reading reading these stories written by a woman from taiwan in 1976 or, or early mid-70s and um just found them so incredibly compelling and um funny and poignant and um yeah there was a lot in there a lot to to uh, unpack and sift through mm -hmm. um bringing back weird topics i've been reading uh philip k dick's exegesis um of late have you, have you ever heard of that no i haven't actually oh suffice to say he wrote it it's like a big screed he wrote over years when he's in a very strange state of mind there's uh, a lot of ideas about time and how time is illusory or um how all times are folded on top of each other and like as, as a piece of um 
science or philosophy of course it's nonsense but like poetically there's a lot of resonance there where yeah you do get the sense that okay she's passed away the 70s are long gone but are they long gone if these words kind of this time machine effect on you um i I say at the risk of repeating myself, but I think it's it's good to emphasize it. Um, but let's not emphasize too much. Let's charge on. If you had a heading, I think, I don't know if this is my version of the heading. I've got the word mechanics here. You mentioned that you opted to standardize uh, San Mao's vernacular Chinese into more, into, I don't know if into is the right word, but you rendered it as straightforward English. Did putting San Mao's um, Chinese into straightforward English force any, well, I'm, I'm sure there's always tricky choices in translation, but did it force any really tricky choices or compromises or was it not too tough? Um, I think this note was mostly about the way in which she, the way in which um, dialogue is rendered in, in Chinese text sometimes without the sort of um, subject being um, denoted until the very end of a long passage or something like that. Right. Yeah. Um, I think this one was something that I, I didn't do a lot of edit. Uh, it wasn't a lot of shifting, really. It was just trying to maybe move a thing or two around to make it seem more natural in English, if that makes any sense. Mm. Actually, I so I'm not a translator at all, but um, a work I was, <laughs> some work I was doing for the publisher um, today involved... Um, rendering a like an author bio a mini bio like a little paragraph or whatever into english and how i was doing that was took the chinese text shoved it into google translate and then using a little bit of the original and a little bit of the raw google translate put it into english and yeah i found exactly what you described there was um rather than conclusion and then explanations for the conclusion it was careful point one careful point two literally numbered one and two and then the point they were trying to make. So I thought, I, I can't keep this as it is in English. It quote unquote doesn't logically make sense. Um, so yeah, like like you said, maybe it's not a deeply philosophical thing, just the question of ordering that comes up in CTE. To seem natural in English mostly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, not, not having it be, as much as I said, I like meta things. You don't want, you don't want a bad kind of pushing you out of the book. You want a good engaging kind. Um, but before I start really talking out my ass, um, the next heading, uh, style. So this bit I found really interesting. Rather than me going into it and analysing it myself, I'll just ask you, uh, what is San Mao's style, her literary style, and how did you as a translator deal with it? Uh, I think it's both colloquial in that many, something that I felt when, my, when I was reading it for the first time and something that I've seen or heard other people describe her writing as is that she um you know she it sounds like her reading her text is like listening to a friend of yours talk um it's very um direct and easily understood um i think you know there's that sort of side to it very colloquial the other side is that she does you know she she did um have a lot of um she, she read a lot as a child and had a very literary um, upbringing. She, she was very well versed in, you know, Chinese classics like Dream of the Red Chamber and Water Margin. Um, and in addition to, you know, Western um, literature, uh, French and Russian authors and so on. So I think mm. the Chinese side of it, she, she 
there are definitely some stories more so than others where she likes to inject some um, allusions to Chinese poetry or um, you know, Chinese literary references in general. Mm-hmm. Um, just just after I asked that question, I um, decided to pick up the book and open at a random page. And then as I was scanning the page for a fun paragraph, you mentioned um, references to Chinese and uh, Western, well, literature, I guess. And sure enough, I've got one. So I'll just read. It's two short paragraphs. I'll read them as swiftly as I can. And then maybe if you have any memory of translating them or if you have any comments to make on them, uh, go for it. So I'll, I'll start now and I'll try not to be too indulgent. I'll get done as fast as I can without reading at rapid speed. Um, here we go. The sun poured down like molten, molten iron. I'd been outside so long that the ground and sky seemed to spin slowly. Jose didn't speak at all, like Sisyphus pushing his his huge rock. I was enormously proud to have a husband like that. Before I'd seen only his neatly printed documents and love letters, now I was getting to know a whole new side of him. Jose lay on the ground after we ate our veggie medley. He was already asleep by the time I came in from the kitchen. I couldn't bear to wake him, so I crept up to the roof and moved down the planks he'd sawn up, separating them into piles for our table, bookshelf, wardrobe and coffee table. It was sunset. It was sunset by the time he awoke. He leapt to his feet. Why didn't you wake me up? He asked angrily. So not the most sensational passage, but how's Sanmao's style embodying itself here? Um, I think the Sisyphus translation was a direct, I mean, the reference to Sisyphus was a direct translation. Right. Um, Not a substitution from a Chinese Sisyphus. Oh, no, there was none of that. (laughs) Right. Um, yeah, I mean, I think in this, 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 in my memory, is a very straightforward passage. Um, it's from the story about you know her first arriving in the desert and really setting up her her home with Jose. Um, mm. Yeah, I mean, I think she, 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 she moves very fluidly between her interiority and um, the external world and the mm. actions that she's describing. Um, I would say that. That's a very um, emblematic passage of, of her, her style in general. Fairly said. Next we heading was Spanish and Arabic. And this is something I, I found interesting. I'm quite interested or intellectually tickled or whatever by transliteration. I always liked learning a, a Chinese word which was made of characters that sounded like a word from a foreign language. Uh, sandwich, sandwich is my favorite. Um, so I learned here in your note that Sanma transliterated uh, lots of words from Spanish and Arabic into Chinese characters. My Spanish and Arabic are pretty much non-existent, so I can't think of any. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I don't know any of them would be, but I think you made a, a, a great choice that involved a little bit of effort on your part, where you translate, you, you took these transliter- transliterated Chinese words, which are just sounds, you trace them back to the source languages, Spanish and Arabic, and then you rendered them back into English and italicized them. Oh no, sorry. You you kept them in their original language and italicized them as like a word from a foreign language often is if you keep it in that language in English text. I hope I didn't explain that in too much of a convoluted way. So th- the question I want to ask is, did you end up learning much Spanish or Arabic or indeed Sarawi uh, when you were working on this book? And if you do, do you have any favorites or ones that have stuck with you? Um, you know, I, I think the, yeah, there are a bunch of 
Spanish or Arabic phrases peppered throughout the book. Um, nothing too dramatic in terms of the actual um, uh, dialogue. Mm. Um, of the research that I did was in regard to the names of the proper names of characters and places. Right. That required a bit more digging and consultation to to properly identify or or um, yeah figure out. Really, there were um, a few that were real uh, that really stumped me and stumped everybody I came across, including the other translators of Samal's book into Spanish, Catalan, and Dutch. Mm -hmm. uh, the one that I felt very pleased about, I would say, is um, in two of the stories, there's a, a figure that appears that's only referenced, not, not an actual character, but um, she calls it, uh, she writes in Chinese as uh, Shan Dong, um, like Shan as in mountain and Dong as in mm -hmm. uh, like a, a building, that kind of thing. Oh, that's um, a new Dong. character for me. Oh. Yeah, Shan Dong, I was okay. like, what is a Shan Dong? Because I... I she she describes the Shandong as somebody who's like a holy person, and I was like, mm. another in another story, I was able to find okay, she's talking about an imam here, like in in Islam, um, right? Which would be kind of easy to put in transliterated Chinese, like yi man or iman or something. Yeah, I'm not sure what it is, but she referred to it something as like a you know the holy man of like um, Muslim faith or something like that. But Shandong right. is something else, and. It wasn't until um, a very late, like 11th hour um, consultation with um, um, uh, a Sarawi um, academic that I'd been put in touch with thanks to some random people I emailed on the internet. Um, but we figured out that Shantong, Shan, Shandong, the, the term Shandong in, in this book, in the context that she used, it was actually a Spanish phrase. Uh, oh. Santon. Um, uh, right. Amen. And I just, I cannot thank enough, um, you know, my, my consultant for that. We, it, it was truly, you know, it felt like the cherry on top of this, this whole ordeal. Um, I just felt really like I wanted to do my due diligence, but I, I didn't want to leave, um, you know, just Shandong in, in italics. This like because no, it'll look like the province. Exactly, right? Like, we're not talking about Shandong here, but like, I would, it, when we, when, when he really um, figured out um, that it was Shandong, I would thought, oh my god, like, it's amazing. Like, language is so interesting. I love that we, it took so many leaps from probably somehow hearing this, you know, in, in conversation while living in Africa in the 70s to transliterating, transliterating the phrase as, um, Shandong um, in her writing and then you know decades later here I am like you know communicating with a stranger from the internet trying to um, you know put this together or figure out what what exactly she was referring to and mm. it was a lovely like uh, eureka moment really well hooray for random people on the internet it's uh, a lifesaver yeah transliteration um, from in, into Chinese rather is it, it like you said it is a a fun thing, the kind of almost games you can do with language. Like I would bet Shan that Shandong, that must be the only or the first time that was ever rendered in Chinese. It must have been. And I, I imagine some of the other trans transliterated uh, words might not have existed, maybe only exist in the the, um, the Sanmao branch of the, the World Library. 
I have a funny wee anecdote. I think it's too good not to share. Um, I had a, a Dundonian uh, friend, so a fellow person from Dundee in Scotland like I am on WeChat, the Chinese uh, like instant messaging app. And we had a little game where we would try and write Scottish and Dundonian slang, but only in Chinese characters and then work out what the, what the other person was saying. And yeah, sometimes it was really obvious and other times it, it was like required a little bit of detective work and sideways thinking. Yeah, and, I love yeah. words like that. That's that's very that's very intriguing. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to go into detail because it might come off tre treating the language a bit flippantly, but um, it's a fun game. I'll say that much. Um, last wee heading you had here. Speaking of language games, uh, Chung Yu for, for the non-initiated. Although I think a lot of our listeners are the initiated. What are Chung Yu, and can you give an example of one uh, that San Mao used, which you had to translate? Chengyu are um, essentially idioms in Chinese. Mm -hmm. um, they are more usually four character phrases um, uh, in which, you know, it's like a, yeah, a pithy form of a much more elaborate sentiment, uh, really. So there are some Chengyu that I think um, uh, have direct equivalents in English and are easy to 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 um, translate easy in scare quotes to translate <laughs> right uh, like uh, 一举, 一举两得, um literally means you know um, uh, it, well I translated it as killing two birds with one stone but that's essentially the sentiment um, I'm sure there's some kind of more complex historical allusion in there but 一举两得 is you know, ju it means to raise and de is to receive. So something about mm. lifting or raising something once and receiving twice as much in return, something like, like that. Cultivation sort of a thing. I'm sure something like that. Right. Um, there are other chengyu that are more complex and that's both the beauty and the frustration and sort of the endlessness of, of Chinese language is that many chengyu are a story unto themselves. And, uh, <laughs> Yeah, you can spend hours, hundreds of hours digging through and really trying to learn. And I think many of these things are, they come more naturally to people who have grown up in um, a Chinese language educational system, which I did not. So I think mm. um, as, a, as a translator, it's, um, it's a challenge, and, but it's also a lot of fun. I think, um, yeah, I'm, I'm really grateful for having been yeah. able to engage in that way. I think my favorite one, and it was one I, I didn't know if this is something you plucked from English or you uh, created yourself or translated fairly directly from the Chinese. And I'm going to misquote it probably. I'm hoping my misquote will <laughs> help you recall how it's actually rendered. It's like a bush between neighbors helps the relationship. Oh, yeah. A hedge yeah. between keeps uh, friendships green. Or There you like go. That. Yes, with a rhyme. Yeah, yeah, that was my fave. Yes, I, I'm. So, I, I, I wish I could say I remember what the actual Chinese phrase was. I'd have to go back and look at that story, but that was the one about all the neighbors coming by and borrowing her her things, right? Yes, unbelievable that they would do that. <laughs> but yeah, um, that was one of the more entertaining parts of the story. Um, I don't, I don't think I've asked you actually. Um, I guess I wondered if it might come up, and I guess it kind of has. In your um, translator's note, you mentioned you had a little bit of a consideration of how to treat 
what what can you say? Sam, I was, the parts of Sam I was writings that weren't quite so um, that were a little bit judgmental of other people because she she seemed like she's fairly judgmental, and you decided to preserve it and keep her as a rounded slash contradictory writer rather than trying to smooth out the edges. Can you talk a wee bit about that? Yeah, sure. So you know she. This is mostly in relation to the Sarawi characters. Um, mm. She does have some, uh, I would say, unsavory judgments of, of the Sarawi, the indigenous people um, who mostly live in tents and have a, a nomadic lifestyle. But, um, you know, she describes their body odor and hygienic practices in less than flattering terms. And that's something that appears throughout the book, not sort of very heavy handed, but it is, I would say, you know, um, a note that she returns to more than once. Um, and I think, um, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I, I didn't want to sort of explain away any of that or, you know, editorialize and decide that, you know, we want to really scrub clean her image for the benefit of the Western reader. Um, I felt like that was, she was writing this material in the seventies in a very different time and place and not to excuse her for any of those judgments but um you know i think she was writing also for um a chinese language audience she probably early on her in her career had no inkling that this would ever go beyond like let's say the you know newspaper reading public of taipei and um yeah mm -hmm. I just yeah. felt like it wasn't really in my power or or it wasn't really up to me or my editor to to decide to remove those unsavory bits, um, as cringy as some of them may may have. Yeah, well, I think it it um, it wouldn't have been good to erase the kind of I don't know if cult culture clash is probably not quite the right concept, but she was living in a society, she, or she'd chosen to live in a society very different from the one she come from, and it would feel weird if there was absolutely no friction or or collision or confusion on her part. Um, even you know, with or without slightly unfair judgments. So I think without getting into it any more than that, I, I really think you made the right choice there and appreciated it and appreciated the meta aspect of reading about your considering the question in, in the translator's note. Definitely appreciated all that. Um that's the last question I've got translation wise. Now we're we're getting near the end. So uh, we already touched on red dust and uh olive trees and the kind of sadness in those things um i guess we talked about the song the olive tree more than the film red dust i i definitely heard a, heard about the film red dust a fair bit as well as hearing about stories of the sahara before i actually sought them out you you, you told us the story of how you first came across stories of the sahara um so my questions are have you seen red dust and when you saw it for the first time how did that come about if you remember mm. Yes, I, I've seen Red Dust exactly once. A couple of years ago, um, there was a screening of it in, um, there's a wonderful theater in New York's uh, Lower East Side called um, Metrograph. And they happened to be playing it. I think it was part of a larger series, I forget which, but I saw it over there. Um, yeah, Red Dust was, came out in 1990, I believe. Um, yeah. And you said you, you've watched about a third of it thus far? Right before going on the line with you, yeah, watching it not very legally online. And I think whilst I was searching for said not very legal streaming venue, um, I came across some event pages uh, for American screenings of the film. One of them could very well have been the event you attended. Yeah, so I mean, I think it's a, it's a historical epic and it was made 
in a different era. It features some very iconic actors from the time. Um, right. From Hong Kong and Taiwan primarily, I think. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I, I like the film. I like the intent behind the film. I found that it, mm, I don't know. <laughs> it was, I think maybe the, 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 the way in which, uh, I'm going to stop myself there. I don't know. <laughs> it's okay. Uh, I have to do that to myself sometimes. I'll, I'll have an opinion instead, um, <laughs> based on the whole third of it I've watched. Or sorry, this isn't an opinion. This is a, a safe question, let's say. Um, I heard, and my viewing of it thus far seems to confirm what I heard. I think this might have been from that Instagram group chat, that it's a little bit of homage or possibly inspired by uh, Lost Caution by Aileen Chang, Zhang Aileen, which is a story I've already covered on the podcast. And it's actually... I think if you don't include the very first episode, it's the one that's had the most listens. It's had a lot of love uh, online. Do you know much about that? About uh, Zhang Ailing and the connection with the Lost, Yeah, and Lost Caution, and maybe the historical events that Lost Caution was based on. Do you know much about that? I love Lost Caution, the film. Um, Ang Lee is one, one of my favorite directors. Mm. Uh, and I have read some works of Eileen Chang, um, mostly in translation. Um, yeah, and personally, I'm also very fascinated by that era, um, the tumult of the 30s and 40s, and um, Republic in China, um, especially Shanghai during that time. I think those, right. you know, it was um, a hotbed of political intrigue and devastation. And um, yeah, I don't know, it was a very, it's a very interesting time. I think it's still, that's why it still resonates with so many writers um, and filmmakers um, this mm. week. Totally. Um, I think I might have told this story on the podcast before. I might not. Um, what you said about um, wartime Shanghai, I'll, I'll tell this as quickly as I can. Um, have you ever read Empire of the Sun? I haven't read it, but I have seen the um, Spielberg film from the early 90s, right? Right. Yes. So um, the author of the book is J.G. Ballard, who's I think he's probably best known for Empire of the Sun, but um, was mostly a, a sci-fi writer, a British sci-fi writer. And he grew up in colonial um, Shanghai. And when he was a wee boy, it became occupied, colonial Shanghai, occupied by the Japanese army. And him and his family were sent to live in a detention center for allied allied foreigners as strange as that phrase is so people like americans belgians french british people and what happens to the wee boy in empire of the sun is basically the same as what happened to him except he wasn't separated from his parents anyway the the the, uh, the funny anecdote part or funny funny in the sense of strange uh, part of the story is the school i worked at during pretty much all my time in shanghai was built on the, or it was a school before and it became a different school after it was the site of that prison so yeah crazy if you're in shanghai or if other listeners are uh, it's shanghai high school yeah it's Shang, it's the home to the shanghai high school international division and the local division oh amazing that's my sister went to high school actually oh Shang, right yeah, yeah shanghai zhongshui the original shanghai high school has changed locations a few times it goes back to the late ching guajibu is the same age as me born 1993 mm-hmm. amazing yeah um, as well i was i was teaching there i was a, in a weird job as a substitute teacher so i did technically teach in the primary the middle and the high school uh-huh. i'll have to ask my sister if she had you <laughs> oh god um who knows i if 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 
if she's interested in that history there or if anyone else is there's a foreign teacher who teaches there who does a year i think it's a yearly tour of the campus um about the history he's probably reachable somehow online anyway that is probably our most indulgent tangent of the episode um i'm probably just going to ask you like the most key questions the um self promo questions so first of all mike thank you so much for coming on the show uh, and here's a chance for you to do a little bit of self promo but first before i before we do that is there anything about stories of the sahara that we haven't touched on that you'd like to or that you think we really should um no i think this has been a very wonderful and thorough conversation so thank you for the opportunity to to um speak with you today well thanks for coming on because i think i'm pretty sure this is like the best case we've done of like a book that's newly out a book hot off the presses so to speak i can't think of any episode where that has, has kind of been as striking the iron as it's hot as this one so it's, it's an exciting one as, as well as having yourself a really cool guest and in with us in spirit in a way sanmao a, a really cool writer so yeah thank you too and and i'm glad that we've touched all the uh bases or areas or whatever that you wanted to touch um so yeah is there any of your work listeners who are really taken with you can check out or out other output or platforms where they can follow you or whatever anything you'd like to promote certainly yeah um so i am a co-editor at the shanghai literary review um which is an independent um literary journal that uh was founded in 2017 um and we're an english language journal um for artwork and writing um from all over the world um in spite of its name we're not china focused or shanghai centric at all so mm. um i would invite the listeners to to search for us online and check out our website we um post entries on our blog but the journal itself is a is a physical um magazine that's published once a year um it used to be twice a year but we've had to slow things down a little mm. bit late and i oversee the um the translation section so um i work with the people um people who submit um their translated works from various languages into english for publication in the journal if that's something that sounds of interest to you please by all means look us up and um submit your work i i'd love to work with more translators i have a, uh, one of the issues sitting on my shelf although i'm i'm really bad i i have a bit of a tendency to buy literary magazines and journals and then never get around to reading them but ask them yes <laughs> yeah it's terrible um but yeah um to surprise you with another wee connection i've i'm not in any of the uh journals but i did read once or twice maybe just once i read at one of the sh uh, shanghai literary reviews open mics in shanghai uh, speaking of like promo do you know if they still do those their well, shanghai open mics you mentioned that yes we we definitely do um so i'm based in new york but most of yeah. our editorial colleagues are in china and indeed in shanghai um we have a wechat group that is quite active and in shanghai um we run events fairly regularly once every couple of months um either open mics readings or collaborations with um others like the illustration collective illustrators collective um shaving in the dark oh yeah or um spittoons the um musical um group from beijing um yeah so it's a very active community it's not you know contrary to what one might think it's not entirely made up of expatriates um all the <laughs> fairly well represented 
Um, there are a lot of um, yeah local Chinese folks too with literary, um, musical, artistic inclinations who join in. So I think it's a really great community platform um, all around. I wish I were able to be part of it more often. Here in New York, I've organized a couple of events over the years, but those are really few and far between. Yeah. Um... We do have a few listeners in Shanghai who might be interested. I'm sure if you guys just search for like Shanghai Literary Review, TSLR, uh, you should be able to find them and their WeChat group chat. If you really can't, I'll put my WeChat ID in the show notes. You guys can add that. And I think I'm still in that group chat. I can I can add you guys, but that's probably an unnecessary step. But in, in any case, I'll be there if, if there's no other way in. That's probably all the... <laughs> all the promo that we can force on the listeners without them throwing their phones away in rage. So on that note, again, thanks for so much for being on the show, Mike. Thanks for tolerating my ramblings into Philip K. Dick and Mr. Robot. That's where my okay. head's at. It's, it's been a pleasure. I, I know this has been wonderful. Thanks for, yeah. Thanks for listening everyone. And, um, hope you get to check out the book sometime. Yeah. It's a great book. Um, I've got the hardback edition. It's, it's, just as well as being a good read it's a lovely it is a lovely physical book to have on your bookshelf but yeah i'll probably say goodbye to you well i'll I'll end the recording now well i know that at the end of that call you heard me thank mike a lot but i just want to thank him again for being such a fantastic guest that was really a great chat we had and i'm sure all you listeners would agree with me on that point so now we're going to do the plugs before i say goodbye so let's go over the um, Shanghai Literary, Literary Review again, TSLR. So if you're looking for them on WeChat, I believe their official account's username is just the Shanghai Literary Review. And what I'll do to help you guys if you want to join their WeChat group, um, being WeChat, you can get in by scanning a QR code. So I will take their QR code and I'll put it on my um, Instagram and my Twitter for you guys. And also I'll put my own WeChat ID up in the show notes. So if you want to um, me to put you in touch with them or invite you to their group via that, that's one way to do it. Also, I'd like to be WeChat friends, definitely. So that's the first plug. Next plug, this one's really cool. It's the Trochiofic map. So I've been making a custom Google map um, which has all the locations of the our authors covered on the show, their hometowns, and the settings of the books, where where a book has a setting on Earth. I have charted that setting on the map. I've also put some other kind of wee bonus locations. And actually, there's one I'm going to add today that I've forgotten to add. It's the location of the Feng Jitai Institute in Tianjin that I talked about in the uh, Feng Jitai episode. So you can find that in the show notes. I'll put a handy link. There's also, it's in, I have it embedded on a page on my own site, uh, dustsymbols.tumblr.com slash, I believe, Trichif, what is it? The map, Trichif, I've, I've actually forgotten the URL and I can't be bothered looking it up. But um, <laughs> suffice to say, if you look in the show notes, you will find links to this map. And it is a, it is a cool thing. And if you have any ideas for uh, locations I could add to it, just zap me a message. Speaking of zapping me a message, um, let's talk about ways you can get in touch with um, myself or other fans of the show. So I have an Instagram account for the show. It's at Trichific, T-R-C-H-F-I-C. And Instagram has launched a pretty cool function where you can make group chats. Um, so I did this for the Sanmao episode, as you heard me mention with Mike Fu. I had three other fans of Sanmao um, in the group with me who are obviously fans of the show. Among them was a former show guest, Dylan Levi King. So I've made a new group chat for kind of an upcoming episode. I have an episode upcoming, it should be the next one, with Ken Leo, uh, 
the translator of Chinese sci-fi, basically, talking about Hao Jingfang, that's Folding Beijing uh, author, uh, her upcoming book. So the group chat I've made is a little bit more holistic. It's a Chinese sci-fi group chat, and you can get onto that via Instagram, basically. Um, there is a moment up right now that has like a link to join the group chat, but I'm pretty sure if you follow it, I should be able to invite you or add you. Anyway, we'll work it out. Um, of course, I also have a Twitter you can follow. Its handle is Angus Likes Words. Angus Likes Words. And I tweet my, mostly it's tweets about the show and show news or things related to translated Chinese fiction. Sometimes it's just my random thoughts. I try not to be a Twitter ranting or Twitter moral posturing person, but sometimes I do that too. Another replug. This should probably have been in the news, but I didn't want to overload the news and front load the show. It's just about the 2020 London Book Fair. I'm going to be there along with the publisher Aline Charles Asia, uh, helping them out. So expect to hear a wee bit more about that. And if you're going to the London Book Fair, come meet me. I'm sure it'll be possible somehow. Okay, next thing to plug, this one is about money. If you would like to financially support the show to help um, pay the hosting fees or to, you know, just encourage me to grind a bit harder, uh, there's two places you can materially support the show. One is uh, the show's Patreon, patreon.com slash trishafic. That's of course T-R... I've forgotten how to spell trishafic. T-R-C-H-F-I-C, that's it. And there is bonus content up there. There's a few hours worth of it now, all audio and one word document of my show notes. Um, I'm going to try and keep adding to that, although I am a busy individual. Um, if you want to give a one-off donation, there's buymeacoffee.com. Uh, buymeacoffee.com slash trishafic. All the links, well, both of those links will be in the show notes. But of course, the, in my opinion, the best thing you can do to support the show is not, uh, it's not about money. It's about spreading the word. It's about um, reaching potential listeners, getting people to enjoy this show leading them in this direction, spreading the word. I've repeated myself a few times, so I'll just go through the usual mantra. Tell your friends, tell your family, tell your pet dog, tell your Spanish husband, tell your local colonial commandante, and most importantly, tell the warm circle of desert-dwelling buddies with whom you enjoy eating hunks of warm, roasted camel flesh, because that's what Sanma would want you to do, I think anyway. So until the next episode, Zaijian. I'm